Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 52, The Great Game. What if Japan never attacked the U.S. naval forces at Pearl Harbor, which triggered the war between the United States and the Japanese Empire? What if Japan, who went from sword and arrow to battleships, tanks, bombers, and fighters, in less than 100 years, had solely focused on China and all the resources it had to offer, as well as the Far East of Russia, especially after Germany invaded Russia in June of 1941, thus forcing that country to focus the vast majority of its military ability in the West. What if the vast lands of Russia and China had not only consumed the forces of Germany and Japan, but also satisfied their leader's desire for conquest, resources, and Lebensraum. Would there have been a Cold War? Or would that Cold War have been between Japan and Germany, fed by Russian and Chinese natural resources? These questions, alas, cannot be answered. Not really. Because these series of events did not take place. But they almost did. Were, in fact, on their way to happening. But then a battle between Russian and Japanese forces, or rather the outcome of that battle, changed the directional ambitions of both countries. After this clash, technically a Russian victory, but really both sides lost many soldiers, Stalin turned his sights to Finland and the three Baltic countries, and then, as a partner with Germany, Poland. Whereas Japan then changed its focus to the south, besides China. They were already committed there, but were more or less trying to wind down that war. No, Tokyo, so chastened in the north by the Russians, wanted to go after the resources of the Dutch East Indies, which led to island hopping, successful at first, which would lead eventually to problems with the United States. But that conflict was supposed to be delayed by years after dealing a crippling blow to the U.S. naval forces at Pearl Harbor. Yet events, as we all know, then played out differently than hoped for by Tokyo. And these series of events that we call history only came about after the Battle of Nomahan in 1939. The end of World War II seems to have marked the end of open empire building for our world, which is why what Putin is doing in the Crimea and Ukraine seems out of date. You just can't take a country or someone else's land. Isn't someone going to do something about it? But whether Russia holds on to what they have absconded with only can be shown in the fullness of time. Nowadays, greedy rulers or leaders are mostly limited to corralling political or financial power. Here the lines are much more blurry than lines on a map and thus are more tolerated or harder to see. But before the Second World War, empire building, the great game as it was known, was considered normal, a way of life for the larger countries, and it was just unfortunate for those weaker, less developed nations. But Japan, when its time came, was determined to be different. The Japanese Empire, or Nippon, had closed itself off for centuries from the world. But that changed when Commodore Matthew Perry forced his way into Tokyo Harbor with his black ships in 1853. 
Again, this was uncouth, but it was the way of the world. The U.S. wanted trade and naval ports, period. But to Japan's credit, they took this shocking display of disrespect as a warning. Until they could stand up to the industrialized nations, they would be nothing more than pawns. And Japan's warrior culture, or caste, could not tolerate such a life. And in that same year, 1853, Russia sought to expand its borders by attacking Turkish-controlled territory, which started the Crimean War. Yet the poorly led Anglo-French forces trounced the Russians. Clearly, they, the Russians, also needed to modernize their military in order to compete with their near and far neighbors in the great game. This defeat Russia suffered forced Moscow to look elsewhere for new territory, to the Far East. So, just a few years later, in 1853 and 1860, the relatively weak Manchu Empire in Northeast Asia was forced to sign treaties, giving huge tracts of land to Russia. Moscow had found someone weaker than themselves. The land north of the Amur River and east of the Usuri River now belonged to the Russian bear. For reference, the territory directly west of Sakharin Island is what was given over. And this acquisition led to the building or extension of the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which then led Russia wanting either to outright or indirectly control Korea and all of Manchuria. Thus, their rail line could go safely to the sea. Military expansion was to assist trade. Trade was to pay for the military. But it was this same territory that Japan saw as within their sphere of influence, a term that has never meant anything good for those countries or peoples under that claim. But Japan, still gathering knowledge by sending out its best and brightest out into the world, was not yet the equal of all those industrialized nations. This was clearly demonstrated for Japan after they took land from the Chinese in the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95, namely Korea and southern Manchuria. Afterwards, Russia, leading a small but powerful pack of European countries, made Japan give up what they had won in battle. But this was not Russia altruism. They wanted Japan out so they could move in, which is what happened a few years later. Right after the Sino-Japanese War, Russia took the southern half of Manchuria, and then the northern half by 1900, after the Boxer Rebellion. As for Korea, Russia did not outright own it, but controlled it in almost every possible way. But Japan, besides modernizing its people's daily lives and infrastructure, was learning how to play the great game in this modern age. Signing a military alliance with Britain, Japan then felt safe enough to face up to Russia. So, negotiations were begun. But it was clear that Russia was not concerned with Japanese indignation. The terms the Russians offered were so one-sided, Japan had secretly decided to ready themselves for war. This was in 1904. The Russo-Japanese War that came afterwards a series of naval clashes, saw the Japanese defeat the hated Russian bear. 
par for the course after any military engagement, was a time of renewed negotiations. That had failed in the first place. Now humbled, Russia signed a treaty that stated Japan's, quote, paramount political, military, and economic interests, unquote, in Korea. But that was just the beginning. Tokyo remembered the way Russia treated it during their pre-war negotiations. Russia also had to turn over the 150-mile section of the South Manchurian Railway, as well as their 25-year lease of Port Arthur. These two items alone allowed Japan to bring many resources out of the area and back to the home island. Many in the Western world would recognize this area by the name it was called in Japan, the Kwangtung Leased Territory. The last thing Japan asked for and got was the southern half of the Sakhalin Island. Yet Russia would refuse to pay an indemnity, and Teddy Roosevelt, the peacemaker, would support this decision, which told Japan whose side the United States was on. Still, Japan had come very far since 1853. But now that they had crossed blades, Japan and Russia knew they would be in each other's lives. After all, they both eyed the same territory. So, just two years after their war, they signed a secret protocol. Korea belonged to Japan, Mongolia to Russia. As for the contentious Manchuria, well, that was prudently divided in half. The northern part going to Russia, the southern to Japan. Of course, the great game meant that China, whose land was being negotiated, was not told of this agreement. They would learn of their place in this new world order soon enough. In 1910, Japan outright annexed Korea. Two years later, so as to not arouse suspicion, Russia backed elements of Outer Mongolia to break away from China. Soon after, the newly independent state was outright ruled by Russia. Both sides had what they wanted. Problem was, they both wanted more, as dictated by the great game. So it seemed that a divided Manchuria would, eventually, lead to war between the two. But before an incident could set this off, the Great War came to Europe. Japan chose to back the Allies and got for its troubles many of Germany's holdings in Asia. China had previously imploded before the war, and then Russia did, near its end. This left Japan more or less intact, with only the United States as a potential rival in the area. But then, amazingly, or not, Japan decided to use the great conflagration in Europe to their advantage. In 1915, Tokyo attempted to turn all of China into nothing more than a vassal state, with its 21 demands. This was playing the great game on the largest stage yet. But for various reasons, China did not accept this treaty. However, Japan did get some concessions. The land of the rising sun was achieving greatness at the expense of its neighbors. Yet all success comes at a price. Throughout China, there rose many anti-Japanese movements, especially among China's young officer corps. Japan had also eyed the territory of eastern Siberia, hoping to use the Russian Civil War as an excuse to bring stability 
to the region. Yet events did not play out as hoped. So, removing the cause of a potential international incident, Japanese troops were pulled out from there in 1922. And through this withdrawal, a cooling of temperaments came about between the bear and the land of the rising sun. In fact, they both indirectly helped each other in moments of crisis. Chiang Kai-shek, the Chinese nationalist leader, who was waging war against the Chinese communists, greatly vexed Moscow, who was supporting the struggling party. But when Chiang tried to take Peking, the traditional capital of China, Japanese forces intervened twice to stop him. Russia was quietly contented by this. Equally so, when another Chiang, this one the young marshal of Manchuria, launched an anti-Soviet, anti-communist war in his area, Soviet forces invaded, humbled his barely but numerous trained men, and returned the area to its status quo, which meant the Chinese communists were safe to return and begin again to turn the people to their cause. But these gestures were of countries, movements, and warlords. Now came the time for individuals to put their stamp on the doings of their countries and others. Men like Stalin, who would not only affect his political party or his country, but the world. In 1928, Stalin stood alone at the government's zenith, where there had once been a group of like-minded people, and even friends, who wanted better for Russia. But now, it was just Stalin. And like himself, he knew that Russia had to be strong in order to survive. The country had gone through its bad times, where those stronger, like the Ottomans of Peter the Great's time, had invaded whenever they wanted, or more recently, the country having to give up so much of its land to Germany in the name of peace during the Great War. But the key to survival now was industrialization, and Russia was decades behind their neighbors and enemies. So Stalin put forward his first five-year plan. As many were openly hostile to communism, Russia needed to be strong. It needed to be modern. Ironically, the plan was started when Germany was at peace, and the Weimar government was seen as sincere in its efforts in dealing with the country's problems. Also, Japan at the time was going through a, albeit short-lived, experiment where the civilians actually ran things. Yet by the time the five-year plan was over, and Stalin wanted it done in four years, Hitler was a month away from taking power, and Japan had troops marching throughout Manchuria. Fascism was in its heyday. But the five-year plan did not emphasize military ability. It was now time to focus on that. And Stalin, in some ways, had time. The Great Depression was ruining other countries, while Russia had emerged stronger than before. Of course, this was done by taking what food had been grown on collective farms and with the equivalent of slave labor and selling it abroad. Millions of Russians died from starvation. As for Japan, its economy, for local reasons, was hit two years before the Great Depression came, which effectively ended the civilians controlling the capital. Clearly, a strong hand was needed 
during this time of crisis. But the people also had another savior. By then, 1927, about 30% of the officers were not of the samurai class. They were the sons of tradesmen. And when the economic downturn came and hurt their families, these men rose to the occasion. It was not to be a time of status quo and sacrifice. The people needed looking after. And one way to look after the people was to make sure Japan was strong, stronger than its neighbors. So when the Hamaguchi government agreed in 1930 to a 10-10-6 naval power treaty, that is to say, for every 10 ships for the United States and Great Britain, there would only be six for Japan. This was not strength. This was not taking care of the people. So within a few months, not only were the admirals who agreed to this retired, but Prime Minister Hamaguchi was assassinated just six weeks after its ratification. And now that the military had weakened the civilian government, they were ready to finish it off. And a law dating back to 1900 allowed them to do this. Any current government cabinet could only stand if its army and naval ministers were of active duty. So when the military did not like what the government was doing, they simply retired one of their own, and the government would collapse. Within a short time, the civilians knew who was in charge. But what's more, in Japan's future lay the direct rule by the military. This militarism, for the people's sake, was also couched in Geiko Kujo. Very, very simply, the word means rule from below. But for our definition, we will limit it to mean that men, not of the top rank, were willing, even encouraged by this concept, to break the rules, something not easily done in Japan at the time, for the good of the people. Episodes of Geiko Gucho rose throughout 1930 and the first half of 1931. Then, on September 18, 1931, the largest example yet was about to take place. During the 1920s, Manchuria had given Japan huge amounts of soy, bran, flour, and other goods, as well as ever-increasing amounts of coal, iron ore, and timber, the very resources it needed not only to survive, but to stay strong, especially in the current world economic climate. These resources had to be secured, and were going to be. On the night of September 18, 1931, officers of the Kuangtan Army, stationed in Manchuria, laid explosives on sections of the rail line of the South Manchuria Railway, near Mukden, controlled by Japan. This terrorist attack succeeded, of course. They were the ones who carried it out, and the Kuangtan Army was ready with a pre-arranged plan to invade and secure the rest of Manchuria, which was completed within a few months. But during the securing of this land, the Chinese barracks at Mukden was attacked, as these soldiers were blamed for the destruction. With the entirety of Manchuria under the control of the Japanese army, the area was renamed Manchukuo, ruled over by Emperor Henry Puyi, but really by the Kuangtan army. That is to say, by the ranking officers in Manchuria, not by those in Tokyo. 
This was another form of geikokujo, acceptable rebellion. Suddenly, Japan shared a 3,000-mile border with Russia to the north, east, and Russian-controlled Mongolia to the west. But Russia was surpassing weak, militarily speaking, in the Far East. So wisely, Stalin did nothing. No showing of the flag or rattling the saber. But then Russia went too far in its appeasement. In December of 1931, the Russian foreign minister offered to Japan a non-aggression pact. Japan correctly took this as a sign of weakness and refused. After all, what more could the army take of East Asia? For the good of the people, of course. Perhaps the time had come for Japan to slap down the Russians in the Far East. The idea of war was seriously discussed, and some of the details made it to the Japanese newspapers. Russia, not ready for war, continued discussions, or tried to, but every offer was rebuffed. This went on until 1933, before the idea was finally voted down by the Army General Staff in Tokyo. But just. Yet there was such a thing as Russian pride. Now that the Japanese and Russians were neighbors in former Chinese territory, clashes were inevitable. The clashes continued and grew from 1932 to 1939. And during this period, not only were the Japanese having to deal with anti-Japanese forces within Manchukuo, losing men along the way, but Stalin made a point of bolstering nearby infrastructure and increasing Russia's military presence. But because this theater was so far away from Moscow and its industrialization, if it ever came to a serious prolonged engagement, Japan had the distinct advantage due to proximity. The Kwantung army, seeing these changes over time, also laid more railroads, built perimeter forts, and brought in more troops. And on the civilian side, the pace of raw goods being taken out of Manchuria was increased. In time, to truly make Manchukuo a part of the Japanese empire, the idea was to move one million Japanese farming families onto the continent, literally to Nipponize the land. But then each side was weakened, although for the Japanese this did not appear to be the case at first. In July of 1937, following several incidents, including the incident where, supposedly, Chinese troops fired on Japanese soldiers at the Marco Polo Bridge, Japan invaded China, using Manchukuo as a launching base. The idea was simple. China was weak politically and militarily, but had vast resources needed by Japan. Yet as the invading forces were sent deeper into the countryside, though they were winning militarily, there seemed no way to successfully end the war. General Chiang Kai-shek knew he could sustain the loss of millions of his countrymen and women and still remain defiant. Whereas the 1930s was a dark time for communist Russia. Stalin has been vilified for his attempts at world domination. Yet it must be said, politically, that the Communist International, or Comintern, really run by Moscow, made impressive inroads into many countries. Yet by 1935, Russia 
had as its bookends two powerful anti-communist countries, Japan and Nazi Germany. What's more, fascism, communism's enemy, seemed by many to be the answer to the worldwide economic downturn. But the wild card in this game between Russia, Japan, and China was the Chinese Communist Party. Near the end of its famous long march, where the future leaders of Communist China would survive persecution from the Chinese nationalist forces, this struggling group would be ordered by Stalin not to only get along with Chiang Kai-shek, their hated enemy, but also to fight by their side against the Japanese. For Stalin, this was no doubt self-serving, as Russia was threatened by Japan. But Mao Zedong, the emerging communist leader, would stay focused on growing his party. He would gather power, defy them all, and sabotage so many carefully laid plans. <laughs>